All right, so today is Juneteenth, which is now a federal holiday commemorating the emancipation of African-American slaves in the United States. So I wanted to have a conversation that really isn't talked about enough and in some cases isn't talked about at all on your local country radio stations. And that's the history and impact of black culture on today's country music. And to help me do that, I wanted to have somebody that's not only passionate about it, but also impacted directly. So Breland is here. Hey, buddy. What's going on? I'm glad that we have the next couple hours here to talk about a few key things that people may not know about black culture and influences in in today's country music. So really the goal today on Juneteenth is to inform and hopefully strike some curiosity, more importantly, probably, so that people can go ahead and find out more information about the music that they love so much. Can we start with the history of the banjo? I think this one's kind of fun because I think when people think banjo, they see have these visions in their head of, uh, you know, old white people playing banjos, but that's not really where it started, is it? No, not at all. The banjo itself has its roots, a West African instrument that was kind of brought over here through the through the slave trade some of the earliest players of the of the banjo that we can point to you know a lot of them are are black creatives uh, and musicians in the 1800s and the early 1900s well before it started being used for for country music you know Breland that's why I'm excited we're having this conversation about the influence of black culture on country music a lot of people don't know the history of those things that they associate with something that has been branded as country music when really it was something way, way before that. With, you know, when we have this conversation in general, it's important to, to remember that, you know, music is, is a language. Ultimately, everyone can speak it, but when you take away the, the history of its origins and the etymology of this of some of these languages, you start to lose sight of, of where things come from and it changes your perspective of things now. When people talk about the, the banjo, yes, it's, it's an instrument that ultimately anyone could pick up and and learn how to play, but the origins of it, especially in the context of how we discuss country music, are significant. And especially with some of the conversations that I'm sure we'll get into today with, you know, how people identify country music and, and who's allowed to participate, you know, definitely is important to know that the banjo is a, a West African descendant. Without black culture, country music isn't what we know it, of it as today. To have that culture marginalized to the edge of what country music is these days, it just seems so so backwards, all the way down to the instruments that we use. So I encourage you to look up the history. Look up the history of the banjo. It's really, really interesting. All the way through the minstrel shows, uh, all the way to who uses it now and who taught them how to use it as well. We're going to continue the conversation with Breland today on Juneteenth about country music and specifically the influences of black culture. One of the things that I want to dive into with you, Breland, are some of the people that we might know their names, but not really know the influences that made them who they are. And there's a phrase that I found popping up multiple times that says, Black grandfathers educate country music's forefathers. I'm familiar with what it means, yeah. And I grew up listening to jazz and big band and blues, like with my grandpa. And I think that's one of the things that draw, draws me so much to country music is those things that feel so familiar. So when we go back to specifically blues, there's, you know, the bluesy stylings of, of Jimmy Rogers, who is accepted as the father of country music right? But Rogers learned how to play banjo and guitar as a teenager from black people who worked on the railroad alongside him. So there's those those stories that people don't know. With Jimmy Rogers, 
years where we're just now starting to to get into this history literally within the last couple of years and I think there were some some decades that went by where people were deliberately ignoring some of, of this history but when you look at just as a vocalist something like the yodel the yodel has Nordic roots but it also has African American roots as well because when you go right like that <laughs> the, the, the falsetto bit of that is straight out of West African history and, and Negro spirituals throughout the South during during slavery we're, we're looking at a dude in Jimmy Rogers who's listening to people performing and uh, using their voices in ways that he hadn't really been familiar with and then he was able to, to add it to the styles that he was already experimenting with and, and it kind of made him into the vocalist and musician that we know him as today. And you know, another name that we know, obviously, is Hank Williams. Yeah, I mean, Hank, Hank Williams is a, is another one. There was a street musician down in Alabama named uh, Rufus Teetot, who I guess he, he taught him how to play the blues, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. and Hank's Hank sound, as a lot of classic country music does, you know, it is a descendant of the blues and we, we know that the blues was really a way for for black people to express the pain of their existence at the time and kind of flipping it into something beautiful that blues as a genre you, you can't uncouple it from just the you know how unique and specific the black experience has been historically you know elvis doesn't exist without a bunch of the black musicians of of the 50s whether it's his gospel influences or, or kind of the bluesiness and the early rock and roll as you said at the beginning of this, you know, there definitely were black grandfathers that <laughs> were teaching them or inspiring them or influencing them in the way that they present their, their sound. There's a name that I was familiar with, but I wasn't really familiar with how influential she was, is Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah, you look at somebody like a, like a Sister Rosetta Tharp, could almost be considered one of the founders of, of rock and roll, you know, because she was putting out music in literally the, the 30s that definitely could be considered rock and roll but you know then you start looking at some of these guys like Chuck Berry and Lil Richard and uh, all these people who who contributed to the you know what we would consider modern rock and roll and the rockabilly sound of the 50s and 60s you know those are those are all black musicians and you know it really wasn't until the late 60s and, and the 70s that you started seeing rock become more of a predominantly white genre but you can't you can't deny that the, the history and the roots of where that comes from. I mean, rock music comes from swing music and jazz and blues the, the same way that that country does, you know, and right. all of those genres, if you go back far enough, can be traced back to, you know, Negro spirituals and, and, and gospel music. And then obviously you have gospel music itself as a as its own modern genre, which we can see the direct ties to Negro spirituals and, and the black church with that. But all of the, you know, white country artists that have put out projects and been clearly influenced by gospel music and, and I'm someone that grew up in church specifically and I grew up listening to exclusively gospel music and you know some of the earliest country music that I ever heard was music that was crossing over in, in church you know Rascal Flatts mm -hmm. having some of that gospel influence that was what drew me to them at a young age uh, obviously Dolly Parton has, has done some of that Elvis had gospel projects but you know for me coming into country music it didn't feel like a huge leap because I had been listening to some of these crossover country artists dabbling in gospel 
while I was, you know, growing up on a lot of this gospel music. It is important to acknowledge gospel and, and Negro spirituals were a part of how uh, enslaved people communicated with one another. And it was part of how they kept their spirits up. It was part of you know, how they planned to escape slavery. They used music along the Underground Railroad uh, and used these songs as a way of giving direction to one another. You know, when you see these country artists, you know, making gospel music now, that history is so important. And on a day like Juneteenth, especially uh, when we talk about the emancipation of, you know, the last batch of, of slaves in Texas, gospel music is, is at the core of a lot of that expression. Breland, that's why I love talking to you. I feel like I learn something new every single time. Breland, I want to shift to the documentary for Love and Country. Watched it for the second time last night. What story does it really tell? I think for Love and Country tells the story of, of blackness in country music through the lens of the people who are creating it. And and the people who have been a part of it. And so often, Black artists in country music aren't able to achieve the same levels of success as their white peers. And there are a lot of factors to that. I mean, you work in country radio, I think it's worth noting that there hasn't been a Black woman with a top 20 hit at country radio in, in 60 years. And that's pretty crazy when you think about all of the history that, that we've acknowledged over the course of this conversation. So I think the, the documentary kind of chronicles it in a way that's really easy to understand. It's very personal. It's not preachy. But it's just people sharing their experiences and their stories. I'm really glad you, you had a chance to watch it again because country music does have these unmistakable and undeniable Black roots. But it's feels like a genre that we have to work so much harder to find success in. One thing that I learned, not through the doc, but, you know, about the history of Nashville and the history of country music, a lot of people think that, that Nashville is called Music City because of all the country music that's out here. Uh, and the real history of why we call Nashville Music City is because back in the late 1800s, the fifth Jubilee Singers, which are, you know, a, a choral gospel choir uh, at an HBCU, one of the first ones formed, they took a trip to raise some money overseas and ended up singing for the, the Queen of England, I believe. Wow. And she was so blown away by their by their blend and their harmony and their talent that she was literally like, if you guys come from Nashville, certainly Nashville must be Music City. And <laughs> that's wow. why Nashville became Music City. Uh, and then obviously with all of the country music and the centralization of the country music industry, that name kind of got reappropriated, but you can't erase that part of history. And, and so I think it's important to have documentaries like For Loving Country, which you can obviously go stream on, on Amazon Prime Video. But, you know, I think in general, it's important for people to try to learn about this history, especially people who are passionate about country music. There are a lot of these kind of hidden stories that have been forgotten or deliberately erased that I think are really important to remember. When somebody says, that's not country music, that drives me crazy. How do you respond to that statement? I mean, yeah, I, I deal with it from time to time. Uh, but, you know, I think on one hand, I've, I've had a lot of my peers who have shared, hey, country music is 
is always changing. Country music is, is popular music. And so it's constantly been developing and uh, evolving based on the influences of other genres. And that's always been the case, literally, as we discussed back from the beginning and the origins of the genre. So I think when, when people look at country music that crosses over with, say, hip hop or R&B or, you know, gospel or something else, you know, people are very quick to say that's not country music, but I'm like, actually, that's exactly what country right. music is. That's right. what country has always been. Uh, and, you know, I'm on tour with Shania Twain right now, and, you know, looking at, at her history, when she first came out and people said that what she was doing wasn't country. And I'm like, man, people are, are very quick to say, hey, this isn't country, this isn't X, Y, Z. But, you know, I mean, the, the history of country music is literally built on the reappropriation of other musical styling. And I think as a, as a creative, try to remember that just because someone doesn't think what I'm doing is country doesn't mean, one, it doesn't mean that they're right, and two, it doesn't mean that it, that a song can't still be great. Garth Brooks, when he first came out, wasn't country. Florida Georgia Line, when they first came out, weren't country, you know, and, and you can look at the success of all of these groups. Within, within black culture, I think sometimes people use that as a, can be used as a dog whistle for, mm. for racism, uh, you know, or, or as a form of exclusion. Easy to say, oh, this isn't country for an artist that looks like me if you somehow feel threatened by artists that look like me. But I'm also aware of, of when I feel like that's happening. And I think the easiest way to respond to that is just by continuing to put out great music. Yeah, my, I mean, my favorite thing sometimes when, when that stuff happens is, is to go, it's not fair you to say that's not country music. It is fair for you to say that's not the kind of country music I like. That's okay, right? right? That's fine. Yeah. The, the beauty of, of music in general, I think, in art is that something can, can mean something to me that means something totally different to someone else. So, Breland, I want to thank you for coming on and having these conversations with me today and really dive into the influence of black culture in country music now. Uh, you know, this doesn't solve all the problems, obviously, and but it could start to move us forward just a little bit. So, I appreciate you, and I hope this sparks a little bit of curiosity in every country music fan to really deep dive into the roots of the music they love so much. So I appreciate you coming on and having this conversation to do this. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It's been, uh, been a good time. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.